The difference is this. So syndication is, I've heard used in three different contexts in real estate. So context number one is as the principal, you syndicate the equity to a number of different LPs that I've heard that use syndication. Uh, number two is when banks are looking to lend on commercial real estate and their lending capacity either on a single deal basis or a total leverage basis relative to their depository accounts doesn't allow them to do the full loan on their own. They'll syndicate to other banks. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Atif Khader from Redist. And Atif is on a mission to help investors like you use the publicly available $100 billion that is out there to help you do real estate deals. And it is publicly available, funded by the government, tax credit dollars and, and, and other things that are out there, incentives that governments of local, state and federal sizes put out there to incentivize us to do real estate deals. And Atif saw this, he saw this as there was this opportunity. So he started a startup. He started a venture capital funded company, Redist, to streamline that process and help investors like you, like me, like the rest of us do more of these tax credit type of deals. So it's really interesting. Today, we go through the various types of incentives that are out there, what investors can do with things like tax credits, his experience with raising capital from venture capital investors and, and starting a startup and so much more. We had a great conversation. Atif and I were on the line for almost two hours. Only uh, You're only hearing a, a part of our conversation, but he's a fascinating guy with uh, a wealth of experience in real estate and outside of real estate. And you're going to learn so much. If you're interested in using these funds that are available and, and tax incentives that can help us you know, make more money as real estate investors, then this is a great place to get started. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in multifamily apartment complexes and self-storage properties. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, go to investwithtaylor.com. Once again, investwithtaylor.com. Fill out the form and take the next steps. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. That helps other people see that, hey, you're learning something, something from the show, and maybe they can too. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, do remember to take a moment, look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. This is a great conversation with a very experienced guy in the realm of tax credits and investing with funds that in using funds that the government makes available for us to do deals and, and incentivizes us to do certain types of deals. And we need to, uh, he's working on streamlining that process for us and we should consider uh, taking advantage of those. So without any further ado, here we go with Atif Khader. Atif, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Taylor. Man, we've been talking for an hour already. It's been such a great wide ranging conversation. And mm -hmm. I, I've realized I'm going to use up this guy's whole evening if we don't uh, record <laughs> an interview here for our, our listeners. Uh, for listeners out there who don't know about you and what you do, 
Could you tell us a bit about your, your background and what you're up to these days? Sure. So, so I'm a architect by training. And what I'm doing right now is I lead a, a startup called Redist. Uh, so what we do is we're focusing on uh, making it easy for uh, commercial real estate brokers, developers, and investors to make use of all of the public financing tools that are available to them for the projects that they do. So that's a venture-backed startup based in New York City. And then previously, I started a development company uh, that focused on historic redevelopment projects in uh, northern New Jersey. And it was through the projects that I did there uh, that I realized how important but how underutilized uh, public financing tools are. And that's what led me to start the startup that I just mentioned. Awesome. So I'd like to dig into, you know, really what you're you're helping people do and you know, this, the, the scale of the, the problem that, that is out there. Sure. Uh, so the, I'd say I would begin and, and end this with the $100 billion. So $100 billion, that's the, the estimate of the amount of money that's uh, given out through different public financing mechanisms every year in the United States at the federal, the state, and the local level. Taking a step back, public incentives are have been a part of uh, political and economic life in the United States since Reconstruction. Um, after the Civil War. And it's ballooned to the size that it is based on this hypothesis that public resources, so taxpayer-funded resources from Taylor, from myself, from your listeners, uh, should be used to fund private economic activity in the area of interest for us, it's real estate, in order to deliver a public social good. And some of the most common ones are uh, affordable housing, uh, downtown revitalization, job creation, and then more, more lately uh, transition to uh, climate responsible uh, building uh, building policies and building methods. So that's the scale. This, this $100 billion is what we're talking about. And in particular, from my own experience and the experience of my team when they all worked at other real estate companies in New York, um, we saw that it is extremely difficult to find the incentives that you actually are eligible for. And then if you're able to find them, to be able to use them to the means that's most effective for you. So that's the scale and the breadth. It's absolutely breathtaking the amount of money that this niche encompasses and also breathtaking how badly it's done right now. <laughs> so presumably uh, the way it's done now, I, I mean, I don't know, but it sounds like it's basically the government allocating these funds and then also the government trying to figure out how to properly distribute them, which governments, you know, are oftentimes bad at. So, you know, I guess walk us through how it's done now and then how you envision, you know, uh, changing how these things happen. So a lot of it comes down to these two, the value propositions. The value proposition is based on this idea of finding and using. So find and use are the two parts of value proposition. And the way it's currently done is a piece of legislation makes its way typically through Capitol Hill or in other cases through state capitals. And it's deemed by legislators to be useful and worthy. It goes through that process. It's approved. And then a particular agency is put in charge of the actual allocation of the of the amount of money that's put towards a particular program and defining how it's actually done. Uh, and that's done typically through a waterfall of agencies at the federal, the state, and the local level. And then administrators at those agencies are responsible for the delivery of that money to worthwhile uh, parties. And then the 
uh, the management or the review of that process over time. And with each of these iterations and turns in the story, there's more and more opportunities for uh, lack of oversight. There's more and more opportunities for lack of uh, preparation of information in a way that people are able to access it and use it. And there's more and more opportunities for there not to be the money not going to the place that it should be going to. And I think the end result is that some areas, some places, some types of construction are over-incentivized and some areas don't have the benefits and the access to public financing that they should. And a lot of what we're focusing on is first the find aspect. So being able to say to someone, regardless of where you are, what your economic background is, you are able to identify the incentives that you are eligible for at any point in the stream from federal, state to local level. And then from there, being able to use. And for us, use encompasses two particular things. It means applying efficiently to these incentives, and it means being able to receive tax credits. So tax credits are the, probably the marquee vehicle of public financing, and they're so interesting on their own because they're the one type of incentive that you can syndicate. And what that means is that you can sell that tax credit in order to raise current funds in order to actually build or develop or redevelop the property that you that you have as an owner. That's the full kind of storyline of the way it currently is done and why it doesn't work and what we're looking to do in order to, to change that, that paradigm. Awesome. And this use of the word syndicate uh, is something I had to get used to a few years ago when I first learned about this. It's different from the raising capital strategy we, we normally talk about when we might use the word syndication. Yeah, the difference is this. So syndication is, I've heard used in three different contexts in real estate. So context number one is as the principal, you syndicate the equity to a number of different LPs that I've heard that use syndication. Uh, number two is when banks are looking to lend on commercial real estate and their lending capacity either on a single deal basis or a total leverage basis relative to their depository accounts doesn't allow them to do the full loan on their own. They'll syndicate to other banks. I'm an advisory board member of Provident Bank, which I believe is the largest community bank in New Jersey. So I've gotten familiar with that second version of what we just talked about. The third one, which probably many of your listeners may not have heard of or not familiar with, is the idea that a developer or an investor through an intermediary who's a syndicator of tax credits is able to sell those tax credits in order to, at a discount, typically 80, 85 cents on the dollar, uh, in order to raise that money upfront in order for them to use for the development activity that they're pursuing. The biggest flagship programs in the United States is LIHTC, which is 9 billion plus or minus a year. Then historic tax credits, which is plus or minus 6 billion, 6.5 billion uh, every year. And then it's new market tax credits, which is 3 billion a year. Um, those are the largest three tax credits that are, um, all three are normally uh, syndicated through a structure like this. Mm, okay. So as a from a real estate investor standpoint, what do you see as the best ways to really play on this? I mean, you mentioned it, mentioned a few ways, and we've talked about you know uh, historic properties and all of that. But you know, what are you seeing as like the best routes for investors to get started in the space? So I would say it depends on the scale of the the work that they're doing and the projects they're pursuing. Right now, on the smallest scale, uh, so those are probably your small to mid size. I think the sometimes in the industry is called SMB type developers. 
That's actually more of a tech term. It's not really used in our industry that much, SMB, but small to medium-sized business. Those types of companies, honestly, at this point, there's not much for you to do until, until we're up and running in a couple of months, then, then go at it. And I think there's, there's many opportunities for SMBs to be able to, to make effective use for this at this, but it's more mid to large size companies that have the financial wherewithal to pursue these incentives through the normal means, which are uh, through ex- rather expensive lawyers or specialty consultants. They are able to generally define and pursue a strategy that makes sense for them economically and takes advantage of incentives that are available in order to drive their returns. So say, for example, like if you live in a place like Richmond, very historic, uh, it's downtown, has lots of uh, interesting, beautiful buildings, that historic tax credits, if you're able to understand of all the intricacies of them and then be able to take advantage of them are a rather lucrative avenue for you to pursue in order to juice the returns of the projects that you would be interested in doing anyway, because the downtown's cool, people are moving to Richmond, that that's generally a very interesting strategy. Another one would be uh, if you are looking to focus in areas where, say, the market uh, rents aren't that high and you think there's a strong need for affordable housing that you're able to take advantage of low-income housing tax credits and following all the minutiae, all the technical requirements, and all of the really onerous uh, compliance requirements. If you're able to figure out all of them, more power to you, Uh, but being able to pursue all of those for your affordable housing projects. And there's other iterations of these that I could describe, but those tend to be the two most common is basically defining a particular strategy that makes sense for you economically and operationally and being able to utilize these tax credits in order to move projects over over the line or to make those that are sort of marginal become much better. Nice. So as a, a startup founder that's working on making this space you know, maybe more transparent is exactly the right word, but but easier to work in, I suppose, for you know investors and, and making sure these deals you know happen more effectively. How do you how do you envision accomplishing that? Because you know, at the end of the day, you're still working with the government or governments. Yeah, I think that a lot of the challenge isn't going to be, or a lot of the challenge can be solved through the means that we're talking about, which is the the aggregation and the curation of data, uh, the ability to use technology in order to uh, simplify and speed up the application process and using syndication for a vastly larger array of tax credits than currently are syndicated. All of those eliminate certain hurdles, but there still is the reality that you do need to apply. The money's not going to come for you from heaven (laughs) and you still need to build that building. That's not going to happen overnight. And you still need to make sure that you follow up with all the compliance stuff. And we can make it all easier, but it's not going to ever be like a snap of the finger. So I think that all of those difficulties will still exist. But to be honest, those are all ones that if you're if you're competent and you're in our industry, you're familiar with anyway. There's always the reality that, I mean, probably the thing that I learned as a real estate developer is that being a developer is not just being about being a developer. It's also being a janitor. It's also being a babysitter. It's also being uh, the friendly neighbor. It's all these things that you need to do anyway that people in our industry are familiar with. But I think the idea is now bringing that difficulty level down from here to here, which is something that people are more capable and more reasonable, or find more reasonable to go with. Mm, okay. So for your company, like where are you playing in on this process? Is that connection? And then are you involved 
all the way through, you know, the ultimate syndication of the tax credits, or you know, kind of walk us through the whole life cycle of one of these deals. Yeah, I would say this is that it's important to remember how huge this niche is and how underserved it is. Um, but also that there are well-funded players in this uh, arena already. Uh, so I think for us, it's about identifying what particularly are the places where we can have the most impact in terms of geography, in terms of uh, tax credits, and in terms of particular services that we're providing. And we are, it's, it's I mean, we are venture-backed. We raised $2.5 million. We have eight people. But we're still a relatively young company in the grand scheme of things. And, and I think from that perspective, what we are saying in some parts is hopeful because we hope to get there. And some parts of it's performative and has been done already. And now we're refining it. Um, so for us, what we believe is needed in our industry is an end-to-end solution, which makes public financing uh, something that is seen as a tool as opposed to a burden for people are in our industry. And that's something that we want to work towards to be able to Make sure that all the different pieces that are necessary to vertically integrate that are, or vertically integrate that is uh, is done. Interesting. Okay. So I'm curious about also the process of starting a startup and and getting mm-hmm. into venture capital. You know, it sounds and, and venture back startups because I don't I don't know your whole history, but it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like you've done startups in the past. So mm-hmm. um, you know, tell us about starting the startup and and getting started working with uh, venture capital investors. So I'm a real estate guy, no matter anyone asks me, I'm always going to say I'm a real estate guy. I'm not a tech guy. And I think it's really important to understand the differentiation because I feel like uh, for anyone that's been in our industry for a minute, they've come to realize that innovation in our industry is often something that uh, we've chosen to outsource. And I think it's not a point of Pride. It's actually it's an embarrassment that the first wave of innovation in our industry were for pe- from people that are outside of our industry. So to some, somebody that worked at Google and is like, oh, I can fix the largest industry in America, real estate, or someone that worked at McKinsey or Goldman Sachs and somehow imagined that they could fix all the problems with our industry. And I think that there is a second generation of folks that are saying, you know what, I don't want to go down that path of becoming an AVP, then a VP, then an MD, then a partner at Tishman Spire and getting the golden handcuffs and never leaving. And that that's like the highest calling of anyone uh, that goes to like a business, like a fancy business school or, like a, or works at a fancy company. I think there's actually a next generation of folks that are real estate guys and real estate gals that are saying, I know how we do it and I know why it's all messed up. This is the particular part of the messed up process that I want to make better. And I think there's a business that we can make out of this. Me, along with some other real estate people, are going to come up with that solution. We're going to bring in the right resources, the right people to partner with us in order to get this actualized so people like us can benefit and make sense of this. And I think the more and more people that are like that, that are from our industry that choose to do that, I think the better off our industry is going to be rather than continuing to imagine that some a-hole from Silicon Valley can do it for us. So I think that, that that's probably the most important kind of takeaway or message that I would say. And I'd say once you get to that point, and if you're a listener and you found the perfect thing that you want to focus on to improve in our industry, go for it. What I would say is that as conservative as real estate investors imagine themselves to be, what I have found in my experience is real estate investors are actually quite cavalier and quite forward thinking and quite imaginative in what they choose to invest in. And I think that's what allows our industry to be so interesting and for, for really interesting projects to be done. 
I think in contrast, venture capital investors like to style themselves as being incredibly forward thinking, very cavalier, very progressive, very imaginative. But in reality, they're very conservative and very pattern finding investors. And what I mean by that is if you wear a hoodie, you're socially awkward, you're a 20 something white male and you went to Stanford. If you fit those four <laughs> things, the money's going to rain on top of you. But if you do not match one of those four things, it's going to be a lot harder. And in contrast, I would say I have, I have found I have such a warm feeling towards real estate investors because of all of this that I've learned about them. Now, having raised money from venture capital investors, it's a very different world out there. So get ready, buckle up if that's what you want to do. Uh, and I would say what got me over the finish line to raise the two and a half million dollars for Redist is... As I think as real estate investors are famously uh, do pride themselves on as being very direct. I think it's so important to be very direct with venture capital investors to say, this is me. This is what I'm doing. This is why I think it's going to work. Other people have said no. This is why they've said no. And this is why I think the reason that they've said no is dumb. Now, <laughs> you make your choice if you want to spend my time to teach you about this, <laughs> about this field or not. You decide. So I, I literally did that after about halfway through this capital raise. I was just so frustrated, like literally giving associate, analyst, vice president, partner after partner after partner, an MBA degree in real estate again and again and again and again and again to teach them about public financing, about financing our industry, and then never hearing from them again. I did that to one to one venture capital investor. So Shadow Ventures based in Atlanta, one of their senior associates. I did that too. a little bit nicer than I just did it, but basically <laughs> did that too. In our meeting the next day, he didn't respond to my email, but he, in the meeting the next day, he's like, I have never, never had someone respond that way to me in five years of doing venture capital investment investments. And he said, that is the most badass thing that I've seen <laughs> a founder do because it's just honest. And I wish more people in, in our venture capital industry were honest. So that's the piece that I advice have advice that I have for any real estate folks trying to get into venture. Interesting. So, I mean, I must say I've I've worked with passive investors for a number of years in my real estate business, and and that's what we do is, you know, raise money from from passive mm -hmm. investors to invest in real estate deals. But I feel I would be intimidated, if you will, to talk to uh, venture capital investors about a, a mm -hmm. startup that I was starting. I, I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe it's just a mental block, I guess. Yeah, I think the, the reason being is that our industry wasn't built on innovation. I mean, I, I say that a little tongue in cheek, because in the end, there are many things that have transformed the American economy because of innovation in our industry. So the invention of steel and going from iron to steel was absolutely what fueled the Industrial Revolution. And it's, it's a big part of our industry, the ability to build, build taller build lighter, build faster. Yes, a lot of it's been innovation. But it's important to remember that the way that we poured concrete is the same way <laughs> that the <laughs> Romans did it. Terrazzo, the Greeks were doing terrazzo. Sure. So there, there's still aspects that of reality that we're not that we're not akin to. It's not like in our DNA to innovate to a large degree. But I would say anyone in the real estate industry that, that feels that they can do something better, just remember that we are the largest industry in the United States, and our industry touches every other industry. So even if it's the most minuscule innovation you can think of, there is an ability to scale that to an incredibly large degree. So anyone that from the real estate, any real estate guy or gal with some idea, pursue it, go after it, try it. Awesome. I love that. And before we you know, kind of leave it and go to the three questions I ask every guest mm -hmm. on the show, 
really want to kind of sum it up, you know, for, for the investors out there who think, hey, I want to start on taking advantage of some of these tax credits that's, that are available mm-hmm. and, you know, just, just taking action on it. How would you recommend people get started to, mm-hmm. you know, dive into it? Number one, uh, go to the Redis website. So I'd be, uh, hey, I, I didn't say that. So R-E-D-I-S-T dot U-S uh, and sign up for our mailing list and we'll uh, keep in the loop when we start selling the product publicly. So right now we have a small closed group of people we're uh, selling the product to as we refine the product. Uh, number two is we have a really awesome uh, podcast that we co-produce with Michael Graves, Architecture and Design. It's a really famous design firm in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, it's called American Building Podcast. So totally check it out. We uh, tell the stories of many famous and soon to be famous developers that have used public financing on their projects. You can hear it more in a narrative style. And I'd say the last last part would be uh, just become a little bit more aware. Just start asking yourself the question about how do I capitalize my deals? And are there opportunities to do something better? And if you've heard of tax credits, for example, if you've heard of new market tax credits and you don't know too much about it, just do yourself a favor, just Google it and just, just learn a little bit more about it so that when the time comes next year and we're, we're out um, offering Arita services that you'll be ready to go and ready to pounce in order to make the most of the deals that you're working on. That's what I would say. Nice. I love that. And Google it ask around, talk with people mm-hmm. around you. You might, uh, you might, you might learn something. I love that. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called GroundFloor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Atif, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I would say the best investment that I made that is not relative or not including education would be, it might be a a little bit like of a twist in what your normal answers are, but the investment in myself to be able to spend a year or two without income in order to leave corporate America. And I think that that was probably the best decision that I made because if I were, I mean, honestly, if I were still working in Excel development, every single day I'd wake up scared. Am I going to get fired today because of this change in the economy, this pandemic, blah, 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 this economic issue? 
So I think that that's probably the biggest uh, investment that I made in myself is frankly, losing a six-figure salary for two years in order to catapult and now actually, frankly, make a lot more than I was making when I was at when I was at Excel through the different things that I do. So uh, I would say that's probably the, the answer that I give to your question. Nice. I like that. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So this is probably where I, I make a hot take is that I'm sure maybe many listeners wouldn't agree with me uh, or don't agree with me fully is that Higher education is uh, universities, particularly, are hedge funds that offer an education, a very expensive educational side hustle. So I know it's very rich for me to say that having two degrees from MIT and one from Columbia, but I would say, especially for people that are now at this point where there are so many ways to get information and to get education that doesn't involve an Ivy League degree, is to make sure that you understand what it is that you're going to a university for and know what it is that you want to get out of it once you're out the door at the other end. Uh, That, I think, is what I would say. I think that the decisions I made were fine, but I would say that is more like the piece of advice in that category that I'll give folks that might be considering a master's degree or some other type of degree. Nice. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Okay. I would say the most important lesson is to uh, wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, hey, you, you are smart. You are important. Gosh darn it. People like you. I think, but more seriously, I think it's about understanding that there is no one out there that is going to be the the best cheerleader for you and the dreams that you have other than yourself. That that's probably the most important thing. And I'd say maybe maybe tied with that, I would say one other would be is don't live this conditional life. And what I mean by that is don't live a life that is conditioned on you achieving this societal marker of success and then you're going to be happy. Or your life is conditioned on this person believing that you are successful and then you're going to be happy. And I think that the more and more that you're able to stand up on your own two feet and be your own source of justification and happiness and to understand that each of these days that you have ahead of you, just being is fine as a baseline of being happy and not having to achieve for this and that and everything else as a condition of being happy. I think that all everyone, all of your listeners, me, you will all be better off for that. And it doesn't mean to not be a striver. It doesn't mean that you should be sitting on your butt not doing anything. It's just to to reframe that the hustle in a very different way. Nice. I, li- I like that reframe. And I think hopefully more people are, are catching on to that these days. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you for joining us today. You and I have been on the line for almost an hour and a half now. And we've mm-hmm. had a, a great conversation. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more or anything like that, where can they track you down? Morse code, semaphore, <laughs> flags, none of this. It's a LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, just go to LinkedIn. I, I, literally, I'm the only person with this name. Maybe it might be like one or two other people, but you'll quickly figure out which one I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just, just get me on LinkedIn, DM me. I reply back pretty quickly. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. 
If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your week and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.